You're listening to a Bellingcat Discord server stage talk titled Mapping the Impact of Conflict. The talk featured Bellingcat researcher Aganish Adabakova. Aganish spoke to us about her recent investigation into the impact of border clashes between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, in which she mapped instances where civilian buildings were burnt down or damaged. The talk was hosted by Giancarlo Fiorella on Thursday, the 29th of June, in the Bellingcat Discord server. Great. Well, thank you so much. I'm very happy to say that we're joined today by Aganisha Dobrikova, who is an investigator and a researcher here at Bellingcat. She is originally from Kyrgyzstan, uh, and Aganisha's work spans from corruption to online conspiracy theories and other topics. Some of her research at Bellingcat has included creating a database of Kazakh aircraft for the purposes of monitoring the crisis of early 2022 in the country. Most recently, Aganish was the lead researcher on an investigation into the destruction of civilian homes and other buildings along the border of Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan following clashes between the militaries of those two countries back in September. And so Aganish is here to talk to us today about that project to answer questions not only about that research, but also hopefully more generally about what it's like to design and carry out a research project like this at Bellingcat. So Aganish, thank you very much for being with us this afternoon. And thanks again for being here. Thank you very much, Giancarlo. Very happy to be here. And yeah, as Giancarlo has mentioned, uh, I've done uh, this research into the conflict in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. And yeah, we'll talk uh, about all the details. I will guess I'll start. Uh, by saying that conflict in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan is not something new. So there's always been this border clashes, uh, basically since independence. So Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, they were both part of uh, Soviet Union. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, um, the borders were like very weirdly uh, separated. And in fact, between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, I think around 70% of the border area was not demarcated at all. And it's still not demarcated. And that's why there's like lots of tension, uh, like Tajikistan saying that this city, this village should be not Kyrgyzstan's, but Tajiks and vice versa. So there's always been this border clashes, but lately they've been happening like just more, much more violent. And uh, um, with the basically lots of casualties and lots of villages being burned down, which even happened like in the last like 20 years, uh, 30 years even, yeah. It's been 30 years since the independence. And yeah, I've started looking into the conflict actually uh, two years ago when there was a, another big border clash. And in that case, again, that one was the biggest. And I was, uh, yeah, I was basically trying to just uh, get photos and videos that were posted online. And uh, it was my first time looking at the conflict zone. So it's like quite new to that. And uh, I know that my colleagues have been doing a lot of work, so I knew how they do it. So I tried doing basically replicating their work, similar to uh, Yemen or even Ukraine work, uh, etc. So uh, yeah, what I started doing right away is that if there was like a video would pop up showing, I don't know, maybe military uh, going like going around the villages, tanks or the houses being burnt down, attacks, etc. So we'd find this video on like. Uh, Instagram or on Facebook, Telegram, whatever, and they would just go in the geolocating. So, uh, like one video would take me like five hours, and then a few days later, I realized that it doesn't much make sense to focus on geolocation right away, and that it would be much better to first collect everything, and then in a group started to start geolocating. But at that time, when I realized it, like lots of videos were already like being taken, yeah, were being taken down, and. Uh, I started doing that still, uh, I continued doing that, but there was just so many videos and photos that after like two months I got completely overwhelmed with it. And I was working with local journalists in uh, Kyrgyzstan and they published at the end 
on the findings that they never published NSM because it was for me I wanted to allocate like all of those like hundreds of videos which was like impossible and I just got burned out burned out yeah and yeah so when the when another conflict happened unfortunately last September I was I guess more reddish because I already knew like what things like don't work when once they, what things work so the first thing I've done is I asked our tech team colleagues um, we do have a tool called auto archiver where basically it's a like Google shared where you input this, uh, you copy paste like the links that you have, use these photos and videos, and it gets automatically archived. So I asked to set up this one and I basically started collecting. While I was doing it, I started talking to Hannah that you might all know. She's the coordinator of the uh, GAP project. And uh, we started discussing to make the GAP project so the GAP volunteers would uh, basically help us geolocate these photos and videos because again there were uh, like dozens and dozens of photos and videos coming up. The photos were very different and videos uh, they were both posted by Kyrgyz side and Tajik side you could again see uh, a lot of villages being burned down and in this case in this conflict it got again it got much worse than the previous one and one interesting thing was that that the Tajik military it would go down to like deep to Kyrgyz villages and it seemed like they were quite proud of what they're doing and they would like take all of the videos how they're taking over a school or burning this house or destroying that building etc and they would just post it on uh on, on their like channels or send around yeah uh so that was quite interesting and new and yeah, we have basically collected everything and went into geolocating with the uh, GAP team. Uh, yeah, uh, and once we... Have, uh, yeah, and, and I've also talked to the editors from the beginning saying that, hey, like here we have all of these photos and videos connected to this uh, conflict and I'd like to publish something about it maybe a map, so it was like in early stages and uh, editors, yeah, they were excited about it uh, so that was nice and once once we've geolocated probably the half of it um, we started thinking uh, on how best to uh, um, show the results and we decided that the map would be the best so one thing about this conflict is that it was um, heavily covered by the local medias, both in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. But the big problem was that uh, the, each side wouldn't just listen to each other. And uh, that's why when I talked to some Western journalists or just Western people who have heard about the conflict, they really had no idea what was going on because Tajik side was telling one thing, because Tajik side was saying like they're the victim and Kyrgyzstan was saying like they're, like they're the victim and just blaming each other. And that's why we decided to basically focus on open source, uh, so like we do, so uh, it would be um, like as objective as possible. And yeah, we decided to look at the social media posts and then also on the satellite imagery. With the social media posts, again, there were things like the military presence, we could see lots of the Tajik people like being in Kyrgyzstan and taking videos. Uh, we could see lots of curious bloggers, curious journalists, just any curious activists directly going to the uh, like conflict zones like a few days after and documenting basically every house that was destroyed, like almost everything. And when you have this kind of information, it's also, it can be a little biased because um, uh, we know that, that the Tajik people, they came and took videos, but there's also a possibility maybe Kyrgyz side they've also gone to the Tajik villages, but they just have never posted anything about it. Or the same thing about the burnt houses. We had lots of Kyrgyz people who went to the places and took videos of the aftermath of all of the burnt houses. Uh, but again, it's possible that the Tajiks, that they, ju they just didn't post anything. And one explanation, of course, the one explanation is that maybe like the Kyrgyz side was the only like victim. But another explanation is that uh, because in Tajikistan, the internet speed is much lower and the government is more authoritarian and the in general public is more afraid to post things on the internet. Uh, they just didn't. Okay, so that's why just relying on social media wasn't like super fair, I'd say, too. 
Tajikistan. So uh, yeah, what we decided to do then, uh, we decided to focus on satellite imagery. And uh, because that one is objective, like we have satellite imagery both for Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, and both sites, they were reporting that there are like dozens of houses that were burnt down, and we could actually track those. So uh, the first thing I did is uh, I looked up actually NASA's firms. It's a tool by NASA that basically you can see life where the fires are happening, okay? And this can be forest fires, uh, this can be like fires from the conflict, maybe houses, like big, big houses burning, or it might be also something uh, normal, meaning that there is a big coal mine or oil mine that just produces lots of heat wave. And uh, basically using that one, uh, we, uh, uh, yeah, I decided to look up the dates because NASA's again firms has uh, historical like uh, data available. And I looked up the region where the conflict was happening and I quickly mapped out where the biggest fires happened. So that was great because, uh, because uh, it's hard just relying on the village names uh, that were published again by the media, so by the governments. Because some of the names they would be so so general, like one of the like like two of the villages um, that were affected by the conflict called we called Dostuk, which means friendships. So yeah, and if you just look up on Google Maps or Yandex Map this like friendship village, there would be like hundreds of them in Kyrgyzstan. So that's why it was much uh, more useful to go to NASA's firms and figure out the, all of the areas that NASA has indicated where the burns happened to basically map out, yeah, what happened, like where the things happened. And from there, I would transfer to Google Earth Pro. Uh, and Google Earth Pro, a few months later, they made more images available. So that was perfect. So I could compare image from March to November or from July to October. So that conflict happened in September once again. So before and after images. And there it, there was like a huge contrast. Uh, you could see like some of the village were completely wiped down in, uh, um, in the Kyrgyz villages. And uh, you could see that like, like there was a village with lots of houses, maybe like 70 houses, like small villages, border villages. And again, after the September um, event, uh, like all of them, on all of them roofs are gone. Okay, so this is the indication that probably they were burned down. And uh, I basically started uh, looking at each village that was close to the border uh, or that was reported by the media or the government as uh, like where the like conflict was happening, the village uh, that was affected. So in the, most of the time, like, there was lots of manual work. So just go to uh, Planet, and Planet is a, a, a service similar to, similar to Google Earth Pro, but a paid version. So they have a subscription to that, and it has like lots and lots of images. A little bit lower quality than Google Earth Pro, but it's great to de detect change. And I would basically go to Planet or. Can I screen share here, Giancarlo? I believe that you can. Okay. Is it okay if I do that? Yeah. Uh, you, you'd be okay, the first perfect. person to do it. So let's see. Oh, nice. Okay. Folks, if you're listening on SoundCloud, you're not going to be able to see Aganisha's screen. That means you should try to make the next stage talk live in case our guest wants to share their screen. So thank you. I see your screen there, Aganisha. This is great. During this next section, Agnes shared her screen with the audience. If you want to see a walkthrough of the tools that she's showcasing, Google Earth Pro, NASA Firms, and Planet, you can check out our YouTube at Bellingcat Official, where she does just this as she's discussing her research in the Behind the Research series. Now, back to the show. Great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Aganish. That was cool. And again, the first time that we have had a guest share their screen. And thank you for doing that because I see a comment here in the chat. Somebody saying, wow, it's really interesting. It's really worth knowing about the scene comparison feature that Planet has, um, which you showed us there uh, just a minute ago. So thanks for that. Really enlightening and I think a cool way to show kind of like the, the behind the scenes of how you would do research um, if you were working at Bellingcat, which you do. So um, as I begin now the Q&A section of the stage talk, 
I want to invite you now to ask questions. So we've got a couple already that we've written down, but as we enter the Q&A, please, if you have any questions for Aganish, go ahead and write them in the chat and I will ask them to her on your behalf. We've got a document here that we put together with lots of questions. And so Aganish, I'm gonna ask you the first question. This is from Jimmy, community member, Jimmy. Hi, Jimmy, good to see you as always. Jimmy asks, Aganish, as far as each side goes, are journalists controlled by the government? Are there credible sources to draw from in the mainstream media from either side? Um, in the, in this particular conflict, uh, RFRL did a great job for trying to cover like the both sides uh, objectively. So they were great, but again, they mainly rely on uh, interviews or going on site. And uh, yeah, they were great, but uh, Kyrgyz side did not like that they're being objective and that they're giving actually microphone to the Tajik government too, to the Tajik journalists too. And they started protesting against it. They started hating it on Twitter and the government actually decided to ban Airfarewell in Kyrgyzstan. So yeah, so that's, that's the unfortunate thing if you are trying to be very objective about it. And yeah, it's just like, both countries are quite nationalistic when it comes to the border conflict because again like Kyrgyz people want the land uh, saying like this is our land and the same for Tajik people and uh, uh, local like activists journalists they still have this a little bit yeah they still have this feeling and uh, there were cases when uh, one fact-checking organization in Kyrgyzstan did an investigation and uh, Tajik ones would a counter investigation and it was really hard to find out what really happened and they also had no idea until we finished our research because for me, like I thought like there's no way like Tajikistan is not suffering either. And when we finished uh, like counting all of the houses that were destroyed, it ended up being like 400 in total. And uh, I think only 20-ish something was houses were destroyed from the Tajik side, which is a, like, a huge difference. And I didn't realize until the very end when we started counting. So yeah. Thanks for that, Aganish. Um, yeah, you know, it's so important to have some kind of context for what the local media looks like when you're doing uh, monitoring of a, of a situation on the ground, right? Um, and as you're saying, it's more yeah. difficult or less difficult depending on the state of the media in that country. Speaking of, of that monitoring of events, Aganish, and, and, and monitoring, let's say, from the outset, as soon as you have some indication that perhaps a conflict is about to start or maybe one has already started. Maybe there's a breaking news event happening in a country with which you're not familiar. We have a question here from uh, 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 Charlotte, our, our, our social media producer, hello. She asks, how do you find relevant telegram groups to monitor when you're starting out doing open source research? And she points out that telegram has just been named as one of the most influential social media sites. I think Eric Toller, was cited in an article by The Atlantic in which he, um, I, th I think, was talking about this, how Telegram really has become an extremely important platform for conducting research. How do you get started doing research on Telegram, Aganish? Mm -hmm. So for me, it's easier because I am from Kyrgyzstan, so I want to have friends posting about it or linking to the Telegram channels. Uh, but. Again, I didn't have all the Telegram channels from the beginning. So what I do, I basically Google stuff. I basically just follow the local medias because uh, when uh, um, like lots of Telegram channels, especially big ones, when they publish a video, they like to watermark it with their like uh, username. So even if a media organization published it, published it on their website, you'll see this watermark. And basically that's how I would go there. And the next step, once I find uh, like any Instagram channel, or I would just go to Telegram and basically like do a search for in Kyrgyz, like for border or Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, or the war Kyrgyzstan. So I would do all of the searches, both on Telegram, but also on Tijistat and Telegago. These are basically services that will find you um, the Telegram accounts based on the yeah keywords i'm gonna send you a link in a second copying it uh where's the chat 
It's going to be on the upper right. There's a little, what do you call oh, it? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this bit.ly telegogo is great. Oh, did we just lose Aganish? There we go. Oh, sorry about that. That's okay. You were saying <laughs> Telegago. Yeah, Telegago is a great tool if you want to search uh, yeah, Telegram channels or groups uh, by keywords. Uh, you can also do it on Telegram itself, but you'll get a very limited results and they're not perfect. And from Telegago, you can just find more. So I'd literally go there because for me, I could find uh, Kyrgyz uh, Telegram channels easily, but for Tajik, it was much more difficult because it's a different language uh, with different communities, culture, etc. So I would literally just translate, Google translates things into Tajik and I would search for any Telegram channels. And even if it's a small one, it's like 50 subscribers, once you go on Telegram, you'll see that like they've posted a photo or a video and you could see that they forward uh, videos a lot. So it's something like a retweet from a Twitter. And once you click on it, you can see who was the original publisher. And from there, you can find a bigger uh, Telegram channel. So things like that. Yeah. And yeah. Thanks, Aganish. I'm just taking a look at the questions here, which again, we are inviting you to ask. Just go ahead and pop them in the chat there, folks. And we are putting them and lining them up in a document here that we will then uh, present to Aganish in the form of a question like this one from uh, Avox, I think, is the way you pronounce his name. Hi, Avox. Thank you for coming to the talk and thank you for your question. Avox's question is, do you have any additional tips or tricks for obtaining satellite imagery that is more up to date? So if you have the budget for a planet, it is the best. Uh, yeah, because it's it's just uh, so much more frequent. And by the way, if any of you are here journalists or researchers, you can also reach out to us if you have uh, if you need some satellite images, because in our contract, if we publish something together, if we do our research together, then we can share. But I also know that Planet uh, can provide the images to you for free if you're an NGO and nonprofit organization. Okay, so that's for you. Other than that, I would suggest Sentinel, but um, Sen Sentinel Playground, it's called. It's also a service similar to Planet, but it's completely free. But uh, the quality is even lower the plan. Okay, so you'll only be able to see change, like a big change. If it wasn't like the small houses that burned out, but uh, like a huge uh, force, for example, or a huge building. Okay, because for those smaller houses, you just couldn't pick it up. Or if you're looking at um, uh, how the uh, lakes uh, or reservoirs are basically drying up. So things like that you can also see on Sentinel. So this is one and yeah, Googlers Pro, yeah, the basic one. Yeah. Great, thanks for that, Aganish. We got a question here from Slang. Uh, hello, Slang, long time friend of the server and of Bellingcat. Um, thank you for coming to the talk, Slang, and for your question. Slang's question is this. Uh, Aganish Slang is asking, do any of the tools ever capture the actual burning of the building or the actual smoke rising from these buildings versus the aftermath? Um, it, you know, is there anything that could make that sort of thing visible uh, to a researcher like yourself? Mm -hmm. Yes. So uh, on planets, again, since they take pressures over day, you'd be able to see some smoke, which was, again, an indication to us that, yep, they were burning on September 16th. So I'm quickly sharing my screen. Hope you can see it. And uh, the same for Google Earth Pro. It really depends on your luck. Uh, if the, so here, yeah, you can see that the, like the whole, yeah, there's a huge smoke over the village. 
In uh, some of the photos, we could also see it on Google Earth Pro. I think only, only for one village, uh, because again, we just got lucky that uh, Google actually uploaded that photo, okay? And it took the photo when the smoke was uh, basically rising. And yeah, so we were, yeah, to answer your question, yes, we were able to find uh, photos where you could see the smoke, but in total, again, there were only like four, maybe five of them out of 16 villages that we researched on. And by the way, slang is, uh, can I say that? Okay, I'll, I'll skip that. Slang, you can uh, dox yourself in the chat if you want. Aganisha is gonna reveal something about yourself, but we don't have to reveal it if you don't want. So if you wanna reveal it, put it in the chat. <laughs> I always feel I always feel like that too. Like there's a couple of Bellingcat researchers who are in the server, but they have nicknames. And I'm always like, I don't wanna say who this person is, uh, even though it's probably okay. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Slang is responding there, but thanks for your answer, Aganish. Uh, we also have CyberHuat in the chat, uh, friend from the Twitch and also here. Um, and he's saying, or they are saying, huh? Yes, actually normal Doppler radar, if it's available in the area of interest, will catch some smoke, I think, if it's dense enough. So Doppler radar, I think, is the one that like detect this is the one that they would use for like the weather network where they show the clouds coming in. So it's gonna rain later. I think that's what you mean. Yeah, I'm seeing some thumbs up there from CyberHuat. So uh that's it. Um great. Oh, that's Slang, cool. Slang says if I knew what it was, I would pay Aganish to hide <laughs> negatives. Okay. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, what? Uh, There's nothing negative. You were going to say something there about something being cool, Aganish, and I cut you off. Oh, sorry. You, you said something like, oh, that's so cool. Were you talking about the Doppler radar thing? Oh, yeah. I had no idea about that yeah. one. I'll definitely double check it for the, yeah. uh, for the complex because that could be. Yeah, that would be very useful. Uh, Jimmy had a question earlier, and I didn't ask it, Jimmy, because I have it at the bottom here. Something about P codes, um, and it's something regarding place names. Looks like Jimmy did some background research while we were talking, and he found out that uh, there are P codes in the region, and I think this has to do with helping to determine place names. So I'm going to leave that with Jimmy there in the chat. Uh, you, have you ever heard of P codes and, and naming conventions, Aganish? Okay, me neither. So let's move on. Yeah. But thanks for erasing that, Jimmy. Uh, let's move on to another question from Agustin Mark II. Agustin says, Aganish, do you read world news in general to get context about what's happening in a particular area? I do read very, very shortly on general but again if you ask me like what's happening in latin america or africa i'll know very very little so i know there are some things happening in sudan or if you ask me like for the eastern asia i will not know much except for the headlines because i usually again focus on uh central asia okay and that that sort of reminds me of a question that i had about something that you raised earlier uh, we spoke about this on this on the twitch stream um i think last week um you mentioned aganish earlier on that you had to kind of take a, a break at the beginning because you were feeling burnt out and so uh we have lots of folks listening both live here in the server and 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 on soundcloud as well who have uh begun to do open source research uh, over the past year with Ukraine, um, you know, uh, with what's happening there, the war, uh, the invasion of Ukraine. So we have lots of folks in the server who are always sort of working really hard, keeping up with news there, doing geolocations in the server for the GeoMouse project. Do you have any advice for anyone who is listening who may be working, for example, on geolocating images from Ukraine or other conflict zones on how to maybe avoid burning out or how to deal with it once burnout is in effect. Mm -hmm. So yeah, in my case, there are a few things. One is that I would work on it nonstop and that was not good. So it, I would like work till late at night or I would like check it at the weekend. So don't do that. And uh, I also didn't have a clear goal in the beginning, like when to stop or Meaning, like, do I stop when I've like delegated everything, or like, is fifty percent enough? So, just having a clearish goal when would you like to stop is good, because otherwise, if you're looking into the again uh, conflict zones or in the research where it's like lots of lot of things to work on, you might just again get burned out just by the sheer quantity of it. 
uh the third and i guess this one is very very important is having some people around you ideally some other core researchers or some people who just check on you and on your research in my case it was again hannah the gap coordinator who would do things with me a lot uh, it's the editor lucy she was the editor but she was so involved in the research too from the beginning and we would have like calls every week or every two weeks where we would just catch up we would just go through what i've already found what are the next steps and these things really helped me a lot because again i would just i would be able to take a step back look at what has happened uh look at what i what i have done and how to further the research so that was good. And she was the, uh, the one who told me at the end that I, I was saying like, oh, I think that's we should stop in there because otherwise we'll do this research for another like two years, which is not good. So having a team is really nice. And the same thing for the GAP volunteers. It was uh, great to, it had two volunteers. I'm not sure if I can name them. If I can name you, please, you can put them in the chat because we have some people in here. But uh, yeah, they were also amazing. Um, just like, things like just catching up from time to time it's really nice yeah so that would be my yeah that would be my advice thanks for that aganish it's a really important topic to uh, all of us here at bellingcat and anybody who's just following the news from basically anywhere there seems to be a lot of bad news uh but a lot of stuff <laughs> every day there's also good news though so um you know i'll just add I, in my experience, like the more, the closer I am to burning out, the less able I am to determine that I am about to burn out. So when you talked about like working a lot, like on the weekends and stuff, like I would call that being really motivated and feeling like I got to do this. But really, that's like kind of like the first sign that like, hang on a second. No, that's not right. You know, take a break. Um, and then talking about sort of like monitoring the news from from the rest of the world just to keep abreast of stuff. I, I don't know about you, Ganesh, I kind of like avoid the news. I look at the news from nine to five because it's my job. And then at five o'clock, I'm done. And uh, I'm watching YouTube videos on like people traveling and eating delicious food. I'm watching baseball, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to know whatever happened, whatever horrific things happen, I'll find out about it tomorrow morning. So, uh, you know, I, I wonder, do you do that too as well? Or do you try to balance your news consumption at work versus out of work? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, the same thing. I try not to look at the news, but I've also realized that for me, it's much more difficult to read about, again, plus war crimes, atrocities, sexual crimes, etc. And I just, if there's some, if I know that the article is going to be about something gruesome, I'm just not going to read it. I'll read the headline. I'll maybe read that very, very short tweet of that, but I'm not going to go in there. And the reason is the same as for the documentaries on Netflix or somewhere else, like on the like completely like different topics. But again, if I know that's gonna be like a very difficult topic, I'm just I just stopped watching those. Yeah. I have never watched and will never watch Black Mirror because I I think I saw one episode and it was depressing. And I was like, I don't wanna be depressed during my off time. I'm depressed nine to five. Because <laughs> you know, we're looking you know, we're gonna be, like, I need to, I wanna watch the opposite of this. Like I wanna watch something that's gonna make me feel nice and good, right? So uh, Black Mirror, I think I've seen literally one episode. People rave about the first couple seasons and I said, no thanks, it makes me feel bad. I, I need the opposite of this. So if anybody has the opposite of Black Mirror, um, uh, please put in the chat there because um, I'd love to watch it. We got a, a good one here from, um, uh, another question from Avox, and I'm going to read you the question, uh, Aganish, and I'm going to expand it a little bit. The question is this, as originally formulated by Avox, when you're cataloging your data, do you have a preferred file naming method you use to keep everything organized? I'll expand it a little bit and say, how do you organize data sort of more generally when you're working with a big data set like this one that had, uh, uh, you know, hundreds of incidents? Uh, so what I use this is I basically use uh, Google Sheets because it's easy to share with other people and that we have auto archiver uh, like in it. So uh, what I would do is I would put on a link and I would do a short description of what I see in there. It can be a military roaming around and there will also be another comment for the uh, city name or the village name. Uh, I might also do, depending on the research I'm doing, I might also do a pack saying like, like weapons, military or houses, things like that. 
and uh, I, I do have the keywords, but I wouldn't name them. Uh, but I would uh, have an idea for them. So they would just basically start by from one and would just go down. So yeah. And the cool thing about Auto Archiver is that if you have a photo or a video, it will give you like a small snapshot. So that's like that's perfect. So you don't have to really have to click on it. Um, to remember what's in there if you want to send it. So you can just quickly just browse it, uh, like what kind of content is in there. So yeah, that's my preferred way. And since everything is auto-archived, uh, I don't need to download anything. So that's also good. So I would never find it. Thanks for that. And I've just put a link to the auto-archiver that you uh, are referencing right now, Aganish, in the chat there. I feel like we've talked about a lot of tools in this, uh, I don't know what to call it, episode or stage talk. Um, maybe we'll drop the links to these in the SoundCloud description as well, because as I said, we've gone through a lot. Um, thanks to you sharing your experience with us here. We have another question here. And folks, we got about uh, 15 minutes here left with Aganisha Nabrakova, who is a researcher here at Bellingcat. If you have a question about her project or just about doing open source research in general, what it's like to work here, please go ahead and put it in the chat and we will add it to this document. The following question has to do back on the project here, Aganish. Um, and it's uh, a methodological question, I guess. The question is this, how did you determine if a building had been burnt down? Was there a metric that meant that you marked it down uh, as burnt as a consequence of the clashes? And uh, did you only focus on villages within the border area? Or were you looking at other villages uh, you know, further away from the border? So two questions there. How did you make that determination? Was there a metric involved? And also, uh, what was the geographical scope of the search that you did? Mm -hmm. So uh, for the determining of burn down uh, is, uh, I guess there's no, so for the, remember that I told you that we also had like photos and videos where we could see like the houses being uh, burnt down and uh, where available we would uh, include them in in the map so if you click on the like on this house and you can see that the house has disappeared we'll also attach a photo or a video if you have that available uh and looking at planet you could see that it was uh there like before 16th of september and after it has disappeared uh but you're right we don't actually use the exact word like that the houses were burnt down in the article because you cannot be 100 percent sure about it so we uh, uh, we use the term changed building, which I don't love, but it does the job. Or in some cases, we would say like uh, this changed building. They indicate that the houses uh, got destroyed. So we use yeah, either changed the building or destroyed building. Yeah, yeah. But again, like both sorry, uh, both um, sides they were reporting that the houses were like being burnt down, like were burnt down by the other side, and that's why. Uh, that's, that's what I believe has happened. Great. Thank you for that explanation, Aganisha. I have another question here. This is based on something that you mentioned uh, earlier during your talk. Um, and it's something, it's a question that I have gotten many times. And I wonder if you have gotten this question as well. And essentially, the question is, why do people feel themselves doing horrific things? And this is um, something that you mentioned when you were talking about how there were actually lots of videos of soldiers uh, you said sort of like really proudly kind of walking around and kind of showing off like the villages that they had just burned and these atrocities that they were committing. And then, you know, those videos then ended up online. I've done a lot of presentations and talks where we talk about a lot of the research that we do at Bellingcat, which is made possible precisely because people who do terrible things record them sometimes and then share them online. So I don't know, a bit of a philosophical question, I suppose. I don't, wh why do you think uh, people do this? Have you gotten this question a lot? Have you given this any any thought? Uh, were you giving it any thought as you were watching these videos coming out of this conflict? Yeah, in this case, I could see that in the videos, the Tajik people, they were extremely cheerful. They were extremely like happy in those videos. They would shout things like, Tajik, go Tajikistan, and things like that. So I believe that they filmed everything because they were very proud. Again, because Tajik people believe that this territory belongs to the Tajik people. And uh, for them, it's uh, they're doing like heroic acts, like taking back their land and uh, like being the heroes of their country. So I think that's the main reason why they were filming. And another thing, I guess, 
It's just that some of them might be just very young. Maybe they're like 18. I have no idea how old, but some of them looked young. And for the younger people, uh, I'd say there's this thrill of like going there and they again feel like they are heroic and they think that they're, they're so cool for burning down this house and they want to share it with their friends or I don't know, like classmates. And the thing is that maybe they didn't intend this videos to be like publicly um, available. So they send it to friends or to a friend group and someone from there published to another place and it became, yeah, ended up being in this uh, article in Balancat. Yeah, I remember um, there were images that uh, Russian uh, separatists took. I'm sure you've seen them, Aganish, at the MH17 crash site. Do you remember? They were like taking selfies with the wreckage and, um, you know, I don't know, I guess we could talk about whether or not they knew that it was a commercial airliner. I mean, I think they must have if they were walking around the wreckage and seeing uh, what was there. Um, but there's lots of images, um, you know, that I've seen of, uh, of of them just like, yeah, like taking a selfie like you would at a restaurant with like a nice dish that you just got. Uh, yeah, so really interesting, um, I guess, again, philosophical question. And thanks for your answer there. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, John Collins. There was also a second question to the previous one, which I forgot. Uh, yes, and it was, have you gotten that question? Have people asked you at events, why do people do this? I've gotten it a couple times. And I always say, I don't know. <laughs> ah, I gotcha. <laughs> I just say, I think people are weird and they'd like to take pictures of stuff. <laughs> That's not a good answer. Okay. Uh, thanks for that, Aganish. So we got one That's from Jacoby here. Hi, Jacoby. Thanks for your question. Jacoby's asking another question that we we I think I gotten um, before, which is what 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 was the most useful? Oh wait, so the sorry, this is for this is so I, I'm sorry, uh, Aganish. I read the beginning of the question and thought it was specifically about uh, your research, and then I see at the end that it's about uh, a publication that we put out today about the dam near Tom uh, Tokmak. I'll answer that question, Jacoby. Jacoby's asking, which of the mapping and satellite tools proved to be the most useful in the recent Bellingcat article regarding the dam near Tokmak in Ukraine? Uh, the answer is Planet. And so that's the same tool that uh, Aganish has been talking about here. Um, and again, the, as Aganish has explained, the thing about Planet that makes it uh, great, and again, Planet, I put this in the chat earlier, is not a sponsor of, of the Discord server or the SoundCloud or whatever. Uh, 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 you know, the stage talk, we talk about it a lot because we use it a lot. Planet lets you get recent satellite images. So in that investigation that you saw from our colleague, Michael Sheldon, he was using recent images that he was able to get from Planet and and show, again, this happening uh, through time. So uh, we've got um, about 10 minutes here left, Aganish. We've got a few questions left over. I invite you, if you're in the chat, go ahead and ask your questions. We've got 10 minutes left. Um, the next one here is a bit of a practical question, Aganish, and I'm going to ask it in the format of if you could, you know, maybe provide three practical steps. So, like, what are three steps um, that a person could take to uh, a person who wants to start monitoring conflicts and breaking news online? So, what are three practical things that you would recommend to somebody who's completely new to this um, so that they can begin to do it and track um, uh, conflicts or breaking news uh, as they happen online. Mm-hmm. First is uh, basically learning the context and being in the community, or even just following the news, following the people who are actually doing research, because you'll also see like even if you're just looking on Twitter you'll see that the locals will be replying to some tweets or like posting like sh- posting the photos videos people will be replying so just following what's happening there uh, second is geolocating and once you geolocate I'd suggest to just post it on Twitter or or actually join Valencat Discord because yeah I'm always amazed how many people are in here and Giancarlo always tells me how you all self-organize and make and just basically start doing research together so that's quite cool and uh, yeah let's say the side of the two most important things maybe archive it uh, or if you are by archive I mean that again like photos and videos they get deleted so archiving it either on the Wayback Machine if it's a photo or just downloading it it's a nice uh, thing 
And I'll add the fourth one, Sergeant Carla, just uh, check also, if, you, if you're looking at the conflict zone, then the NASA's fire maps is actually great because, again, when they're like big missiles launching, they'll also uh, launch lots of heat wave, which you can spot at NASA's firm sometimes. So that's nice. Yeah, that's a really good piece of advice. Um, I know, you know, we can tell you that like internally, whenever there's news of like there was a missile strike or, you know, something, there's been an industrial explosion or something and we're trying to geolocate it one of the things that we'll do is we'll go to nasa firms and see if there's fire signatures in the area that we think is it we're interested in and then kind of zoom in on those with something like planet so i i, I know that over the weekend with the wagner thing in russia uh when there were all these reports of like the oil refinery being on fire um um in the, the name of the town that I can't remember, uh, or helicopters and, and airplanes being shot down. Um, I remember Jake Godin, who's in the chat here. Hi, Jake. Um, Voronez, thank you, Erides. Uh, Jake would say, I, I don't see anything on NASA firms. So Jake was like checking reflexively uh, NASA firms to see if there were fire signatures that were registering yet so that it would help us to like, you know, both geolocate and verify a particular piece of news. And speaking of verifying news, uh, we have a question here from a normal person, nothing more. <laughs> I love the name. A normal person, nothing more, uh, is asking. <laughs> Thank you for coming to the talk and for your question. They're asking, Aganish, what is the best way of filtering out which parts of a news broadcast is reliable? Is there a good way to do that? Or how do you do that generally? How do you listen to a news broadcast and then in your brain start separating what's reliable and what's not? I think that one is getting more and more difficult. So if it's something new, the first thing I'll do, I'll just Google it. And from there, if it's a, a very like um, yellow pager thingy, it will Google usually will tell me right away. Uh, but other than that, just trying to look, yeah, just trying to hear the narrative. Are they telling you only the facts or are they just pushing lots of narratives or you can see that they're manipulating the facts, uh, like saying like, here's what they posted, but then they start spiraling into another narrative. So yeah, that's that's a very short answer to it. But yeah, it, yeah. Thanks, it takes quite some effort, I'd say. Yeah, in some sense, it's like the question of our age is how do you tell you know reliable news from not reliable news? So in, on the one hand, you could probably write a whole book about this. But on the other hand, you know, there's a couple of practical things that you can do, which you've just heard from you. So thanks for that. We have about five minutes here left, friends. So if you got a question, now is the time to get it in. We have one here, Aganish. Um, and this is um, something that I caught when you were speaking. And you showed us this on your screen, but I want to maybe spend a couple minutes thinking about this. You talked about a lot of this being manual, a lot of manual work. You said, I just had to do a lot of manual work. And when you were showing your screen, you were kind of talking about like, yeah, I just had to like look at a lot of satellite images. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about what that manual work is, because I feel like uh, folks who don't work at Bellingcat or who don't, you know, who don't do research like we do, uh, or who aren't journalists, um, they, they, I don't know, they might have um, uh, one idea of what it's like to do work like on the everyday, just like, hey, it's a Tuesday morning, I got to do my job. Um, can you talk about just a little bit more? What is the manual labor that you're talking about? Uh, what does that look like? How long does it take? You know, what is a typical Tuesday morning uh, look like for you? Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. So the question is specifically manual work in this research or in general? Um, yeah, let's do both. Let's do in the research and then more generally what you mean by manual work. Mm -hmm. So in the research, the fun parts are geolocation. And geolocations are fun if you have limited of them. If they're infinite, then that's very, that can get depressing. So, but the manual work is again, just going to planet and doing the slider for every village, for every part of the village, and trying to notice if like one pixel has changed because this one pixel might indicate that the house was burned down. So this would take like literally days and days. And that was quite manual. And once I would find those um, changes, I would go to Google Earth Pro. I would do the same thing, but with the different, yeah, with the different dates that Google has. And I would manually, I would just pinpoint each house, okay, that has uh, that has disappeared from the maps. Because at the end, when we publish the uh, the map of the 
changed houses, destroyed houses. We mapped each single house that uh, we found to be destroyed. And for that, like, I had to go on Google Earth Pro. Once I did everything on the slider, I would just quickly put, not quickly, it would like take probably a minute, like maybe a half a minute to put a pin on each house. And then it would need to be perfect. So when Lucy was uh, looking at it, it, it it shouldn't be like very old, so we would actually have a calls and you together like change it. So putting all the spins on the 400 houses, finding those 400 houses, it also would take literally just weeks. So that's the manual part. Um, writing for me is also, I don't like the writing part, I love the research part. So that's a lot of talks with the editors. And because I said, I don't have a journalistic background and uh, that's why uh, my research style, like my writing style is quite different from what editors would prefer me. So there would be lots of like, uh, uh, back, like what's it called? Basically lots of talks uh, for every wording, but also the editors are very concerned for the uh, legal liabilities. So then would basically have like lots of talks on this particular world, especially about this changed building, which I didn't love, but it was a safe word. And lots of, yeah, so editing would also take a lot of time. And for my uh, usual day, I guess lots of manual work goes into emailing. So I have no idea how much emailing I do, just because lots of people email us with questions and research, and we try to answer those. Uh, but also like workshop organizing for the trainings, because we do trainings a lot, that still take like a lot of time. So that's the manual part that I, don't always like or they're like weekly calls that we have like we have lots of stuff calls yeah a lot of meetings That's awesome. a lot of emails a lot of yeah yeah manual labor yeah yeah totally uh well thank you for so much for that uh Aganisha Darbikova, a researcher and a trainer here at bellingcat thank you so much for taking the time to share your experience with us today thank you so much and carla and thanks everyone for participating thank you for listening to the stage talk if you'd like to catch a stage talk live and ask the guest questions, join the Bellingcat Discord server by visiting www.discord.gg forward slash Bellingcat. The music you've heard is titled 1983 by Ben Elson and is courtesy of Epidemic Sound. <laughs>